We're going to be reading Matthew 24, verses 36 through 41. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be at the grind, grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. You can be seated. Hope y'all are doing well. So it uh, seems like we're in some random verses here in Matthew 24. I'm going to try to make some sense of it in just a second. Um, but before I do that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into Matthew 24. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that it is um, what we need in order to grow in godliness, in order to grow in righteousness. And so I pray now that as we look at it, that you would come now by the power of the Spirit and do a supernatural work um, in all of our hearts. I pray that we would focus on Jesus and that as we look at things that are going to be happening in the future, set and end times, um, that they would have present day realities and present day implications and present day applications for us. Because of all these things I'm asking, Lord, I, I know that I'm in special need of you to come now by the power of the Spirit and to move me aside and speak through me. And so I pray, God, for help. I am desperate for you. I pray that you focus my heart and my mind and that um, these words would be edifying for my soul as well as for all of us here. We love you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been going through, as Ben said at the very beginning, the book of Matthew. And so um, what I would like to do is to give everybody a little bit of a small review. I said that last week, and my wife told me, small review, that's the the longest small review I've ever seen. It's like 20 minutes later. You hadn't even started on your text. Um, She loves me, so she can speak that direct to me. and it not destroy me. So uh, I'm going to attempt a, uh, an actual small review here. So we've been going through the book of Matthew. Um, we started it in December of 2011, I think. So um, what we've been doing is taking it as kind of a section at a time and renaming those sections. And so here we came to chapters 24 and 25, and we called this particular section of chapters 24 and 25, The Coming King. And that's because as Jesus is kind of finishing his last thoughts, and, and, and if you've read Matthew 23, it's a real direct kind of sharp conversation he has with the Pharisees. And as he finishes those things, um, he's in the very last week of his life. More than likely, it's 
Tuesday. You know, we, we, the, the false trial happens on Thursday and Friday. He dies on the cross. So more than likely, it's Tuesday, getting later on in the day, Tuesday. He has this really sharp conversation with the Pharisees, um, and he leaves the temple, and he's walking up to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples are kind of having a question with him about some of the last things he said. He sits down um, on the Mount of Olives in chapter 24 and 25, and he begins this long teaching discourse in the book of Matthew. It's the sixth teaching discourse, which just means he's going to talk for a long time. It's a whole lot of red words in a, in a, long, t- a long time. They, the, the, the chapter begins with a question. So uh, the disciples want to know in 24 verse 3, they have a couple questions for him. You can see it right there. Tell us when these things will be. That's basically saying, you just said the temple's going to be destroyed. Can you tell us when that's going to happen? And then the rest of the question is, and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the end of the age? So they kind of ask two questions. When's the temple going to be destroyed? When are you going to come back? Can you tell us those two things, Jesus? They feel like those two things are going to happen simultaneously at the same time. And so for chapters 24 and 25, Jesus is going to kind of unpack for them. They're not going to happen at the same time. The temple is going to be destroyed very soon. We know, if we look back on history, A.D. 70. Um, and then Jesus still hadn't come back yet, and we're in 2013. So he's trying to helping them see those things. Um, and he gives them this big, long teaching, which is chapters 24 and 25. And the big... The content of the big chapters are of these 24, 25, which we've entitled Coming King, um, is he gives them a timeline for basically 24 through the first two-thirds of chapter 24, a timeline of the way the end time things are going to happen. And then after that, he gives them a lot of teachings or a lot of um, helping them understand the need for them to be ready. Based on the fact that here's the timeline of these things are going to happen, he gives them some content of teaching chapters 24 into chapters 25 of the necessity for them to be ready for that, those end times to come. And at the very end of chapter 25, starting at verse 31, he talks about the final judgment that's going to happen one day. And that's, that's kind of the big idea of what's going on here in chapters 24 and 25. Um, and so w- we've been going through it. And what we've seen as we've gone through it here, uh, we're at verse 36. So the first 35 verses, even though it took me, I think, three or four sermons to do all that, um, Really, it's all kind of one big sermon. And, and so what we saw in the very beginning in 1 through 15 are these kind of signs that are going to happen that are helping us see that Jesus is going to come. He, as he's given us this timeline, he talks about earthquakes and people saying that they're Jesus. And he gives these signs of false prophets, and etc. And then at verse 15, um, he starts talking about the d- destruction of the, of the Jerusalem temple. And he also talks about his coming at verse 27. And when he says uh, his coming in verse 27, it says, As the lightning comes from the east... Um, and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, when his coming comes, it's going to be huge. You're not going to have to wonder, is this really Jesus or not? And he, he says, like, he, don't go looking in drawers and closets and, and out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. Like, is he out here? Like, you'll know, because the whole world will know. And then he talks a little bit more about his coming as well. In verse 30, 29, 30, and 31, you can say they'll see the sign of the Son of Man. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, as it says in verse 30. And at, at that same time... In, Verse 31, it says he's going to gather his elect. In other words, when he comes, that second coming of his, all those that are his that are on the earth at that particular time, he's going to gather them up. And we've, we've talked about the timeline and all that kind of stuff. It's not necessarily pertinent to what we're doing right now. So that brings us all the way to verse 36. Now, it's interesting. You're probably wondering, whenever uh, Carrie was just reading, why did she start at verse 36 and, and stop right there at verse 41, like right in the middle of the paragraph? Wasn't she supposed to at least finish the paragraph? The reason why she stopped there um, 
is because if you see verse 32, it says, therefore, um, actually that therefore is showing a little transition. I know it's not necessarily in your scriptures, but there's, there's a transition there. Well, what's going to happen here is um, Jesus is going to start giving us some parables. Uh, and so you can see verse 42 through 44 is the first parable. Um, verse 45 through 51, finishing up that chapter is another parable. And then it actually tells us about the parables, has titles in 25.1, the parable of the ten virgins, and then 14, parable of the talents. And those, those parables right there are basically stories um, that aren't real, but they're stories to try to help them understand uh, the way that they need to be ready, what are some, some proper ways that they need to be living in light of this coming. So what I'm going to do then is stop Today, and we're not going to go over those parables. We'll, we'll start that next week. We're just going to look at 36 through 41. Last week, we, we entitled the sermon Return of the King um, in honor of J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Today, the title of the sermon is Return of the King, Part 2. So we're just going to continue in that same idea of Return of the King. And what we're going to see here then is in 36 through 41, there's warnings about the return of the king. There's three different kinds of warnings that, are, that we should be presently aware of. Um, in, in regard to Jesus' second coming. So what I wanted to do is, um, as we've been going through the end times and as we've been talking about the end times, I feel like, maybe it's just me, I, I'm sort of don't want to import my feelings into you, but maybe it's just me, as we've been going through this, um, and, I, and I think about coming judgment, second coming of Jesus, power to judge, power to exercise righteous, righteous judgment on all of us who are, who are wicked sinners, etc., etc., when we start thinking about that, it causes in me a little bit of, I think, understandable trepidation. We're like, man, this is crazy he's huge and big and i'm getting scared and it's talking about something you know this this big huge white throne judgment and i all that is a little bit concerning for me and so when i think about that day i really i'm not so jazzed up about it happening right away it would be fine with me if it would happen much later on because i look at my own life and i think wow i got a lot of messed up stuff in my life i i do not follow jesus the way i should and when i think about that i'm a little bit scared and so i don't i don't pray for that to happen soon I'm actually hoping that it happens a long time from now. And so um, what I wanted to do then is I wanted to kind of flip that, that mindset for us all and remind us that that day it, for Christians is not a day that should scare us, but instead should be a day that should excite us. More than that, not just excite, but also it should be a day that we should be actively praying for and even, I'm going to show you the verse, that we should be fasting for, like we should be on our knees, begging God, make that day happen now. Now, some of those days, I remember in college, I would ask whenever I, I had a final the next day and I hadn't studied. I'm like, Lord Jesus, just come tonight. I don't want to take that final. Just, it's fine with me if I don't get married. I just really want to be in heaven and not take and fail this final tomorrow. Like, I had that happen sometimes in college. But um, whenever that's gone, you're like, okay, don't happen now. I got a whole lot of stuff I want to do. Um, so what I want to do is, is read a text to y'all to set the tone for us, I think. So when we're thinking on that final day, we're not approaching it with, with trepidation and fear and, and being scared. Instead, we're, we're approaching it with the way that I think God wants us to approach it, which is actual excitement. When we think about the second coming of Jesus, he wants us to be excited. So let me read to you. This is in Matthew 9. We, we read this, it feels like three years ago, um, whenever we were going through Matthew at some point back then. Uh, Matthew 9, start, I'm starting at verse 14. Um, the disciples of John, so this is when Jesus was in his ministry and Jesus had people that followed him. John the Baptist had people that followed him. And the disciples of John are interested in all this. And it says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, 
Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So the disciples of John lived much like him. They were not crazy as eccentric, and maybe they didn't eat bugs and stuff. But they, they, they fasted a little bit. They thought a little bit more about the, uh, the life of following God and that they should, they should um, neglect themselves from things. But Jesus' disciples that followed him, they were at the parties. They were, they were eating and feasting and all this kind of stuff. And they were like, how come, how come we are... are living a little bit more of a life of, of less, but you seem to be, you know, fine with just indulging in food and all that kind of stuff. Your, your spirituality seems different than ours. And so it says here in verse 15, this microphone is driving me crazy. Um, it, so it's here in verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So in other words, <clears throat> um, you're acting like everything's sad right now, but Jesus, the bridegroom, he's present you act sad and mourn when he's not present. But when he's right here, like, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm right here. You don't have to be sad and neglect and, and live this life of, of, of taking away stuff. Instead, since I'm here, you're not sad right now. It says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, he's saying, while I'm here right now on earth, you don't need to live this life of neglect. There's going to be a day when I am gone, and that's whenever you'll fast. So Jesus died on the cross uh, in roughly the year AD 33 or so. After he died, he was resurrected. He lived on earth for a little while, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And ever since that first century until now, he has been taken from us. And so what he's trying to say is when he's gone from them, that's when they'll fast. And that's our present reality right now. He is ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. We are not physically with him right now. In other words, since he's gone, the bridegroom is away from us. Therefore, we don't want to be separated from our bridegroom. So now is the days that we should fast. And the fasting is signifying, come now. We're separated. Come now. You can just picture this in your mind. Consider a, a bride and a groom who have gotten married, and as soon as they get married, they separate them out, and they just never get to be together. They, they love each other dearly, but they're never, ever together, ever. You would think, they need to get back together, and the longing that both of them feel in their hearts is not, well, one day I'm going to see him. It's going to come one day. Like, she and he both say, I long to be with my husband. I long to be with my bride right now. I want it right now. And I want to do everything possible to make that come together. And Jesus is using that same kind of language in regard to that second coming. And he's saying to us, um, and I think we can all understand, that we are, should be deeply desiring and doing everything we can to change the present day situation so that our, as we, the bride of Christ, the church, would say, we want our bridegroom to come right now. That joyful day of reconciliation, we want it right now. What can I do? And he's told us in his scriptures, you can fast. You can fast. And in that fasting, whenever you feel the hunger pains, the fasting is an outward, pine that, outward sign that says, these hunger pains that I'm feeling right now that tell me that I want food, which I, I've realized as you get older, happen a whole lot more. And certainly, like right before it's bedtime, Christy, I'm starving. Big boy's got to go get some food here. It's like midnight. And she's like, oh, I know. You watch it. You're 38. So anyway, um, 
what the, the idea of fasting is this. These present feelings of hunger I feel right now, these, these feelings of wanting food, they're reminding me that I want something. And what I'm going to do instead of eat, I'm going to take these hunger pains and use them as a reminder that, that makes me in my mind say, more than food, God, I want you right now, Jesus, to come right now. So instead of eating food and taking away these pains so I don't think about it, I'm not going to eat food so that the pain continually happens, continually happens. And I think more than food, I want you, Jesus, come, come. The, the pains themselves are the mental reminder to pray at that moment. Come, come right now. Now, Certainly not all of us can do this. We can, we can fast other things, but food is a great reminder because we want it so desperately whenever we're hungry. And we should fast as believers. Um, when it's medically possible, you should fast as often as you can, even if it's just for one day a week or miss a meal, so that in that fasting, when it happens, we're not looking at that day with some kind of fear. Instead, we're longing for it. We're longing for it. Come now, Lord Jesus. And so... As we look at these particular verses, um, when we're looking at the future and we're looking at the return of the king and they're giving us some warnings, what I want us to do here is kind of take that mindset of Matthew 9, which says we should be doing what we can thinking about the, the Son of God. Because I think that when I, when, I, when I think about Christianity on the whole, at least in my own life, or maybe just kind of observing evangelicalism in America, and maybe this is true of you, um, I think instead of us doing everything we can to hasten or bring the day of Christ, the, the, the more picture is we're kind of sitting on our couch, you know, chilling, just waiting for Jesus to show up to the house, ring the doorbell and say, I'm back. And instead of out in the yard, like looking and saying, when you coming? The fasting idea is we're out in the yard. We're saying, when you coming, Jesus, I want you now. And I think most of us are in the house um, doing a project or laying on the couch, playing some Wii. Um, and so the question is, what would being out in the yard, quote unquote, being out in the yard, look like in your present day application life right now? What would it look like? What would anticipatory acts on your life look like if you were really deeply desiring the second coming of Christ? What would it look like? And so as we're going in here, um, there's some warnings for us in these particular verses. And I think these warnings are not meant to scare us. These three warnings we're going to see in this text are not meant to scare us. Instead, as Christians, they're meant to arouse a deep desire for Christ to come. So let's look at these. The first one is in verse 36. Um, It says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels. So that day or that hour is the the moment of Jesus' coming. He's talked about it there in verse 27. He's talked about it in verse 30 and 31. And he's continuing in that same idea. He even talked about it in 32 through 35. Uh, And now he's continuing in that same idea, speaking of his second coming. He says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So this is, this is quite interesting language. Um, because we know that the Son, Jesus, is still God. We believe in one God with three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying here is inside the Trinity, inside the Godhead, that the first person of the Trinity, God the Father knows, but even the Son doesn't know. And so... The question I would think we would all have is, um, if he doesn't know, 
and God's supposed to be omniscient. Is he God? Is that really what's going on here? Um, he is now not God. And so this, these are, I think, really good questions. At least that's what I was trying to figure out. Now, one, one little side note when it says, but concerning that day, no one knows, it really means no one knows. So when Harold Camping is going to give us his next <laughs> prediction, we just need to kind of throw that to the side. That's the guy that kept saying, it wasn't then, it was here. And it wasn't here, oh, I need to just go in hiding and hide out for a while because people are getting mad at me. Whenever he gives his next prediction, just ignore it. Literally, no one knows. But let's, let's kind of approach this idea about Jesus. Um, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of the heaven, nor the Son of God, but the Father only. But the Father only. Um, this is how commentators, and I think they're right, answer this particular question about Jesus not knowing. Uh, because we can ask ourselves, does Jesus really know? The most commentators say, you have Jesus. I'm going to do a little bit of what's called Christology. It's just the study of Jesus, study of Christ with you. We, we know that Jesus is one person, um, but he also has two natures. The, the divine nature or the God-man, the God nature and the humanity. The, he's, he's 100% God, he's 100% man. And what they say is, whenever the incarnation happened, that's whenever God became man, he incarnated himself. That means he just literally took on flesh. Whenever God descended down, became a man, he was 100% God and he's 100% man. And he can choose as Jesus, as God, to not have some things in his human side. And so one of the things that in his human side, not in the divine side, but in the human side, he chose to limit was some knowledge. And so in this, I know this is getting a little bit confusing. Just follow me. He's saying, in regard to my humanity, in regard to my man side, I have chosen to not have some knowledge. And some of that knowledge includes the way the end times are going to happen. Certainly in his divine side, he does know, but he's only speaking unto humanity. So one commentator says, Jesus purposely laid aside temporarily the exercise of his omniscience, that means being all-knowing, as a part of what was involved in his becoming a human being. Another way, Spurgeon says that even Christ in his human nature so voluntarily limited his own capacities that he knew not the time of the second advent or the second coming. Um, Calvin actually espouses a much the same view, but in a much lengthier argument. And I don't need to say it because I quoted the other two guys who are a little bit more concise than Calvin. Um, so I think that's the point here is that we can see that Jesus doesn't even know. But what we can see inside of this is um, he certainly knows in his divine side. He's not limited at all. He's still God. But when he says he doesn't know, um, that is a warning for us, especially when we kind of contrast this with, with verse 33. Verse 33 says, well, let me read 32 so you can get it. So, from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So, he's saying, no one knows, but at verse 33, because as soon as these things happen, you'll know. So, no one knows precisely when it's going to happen. However, there are going to be things that are going to be happening. And when those things happening, then you'll know. So the, the broad point that it's trying to make for us, so the first warning is this. The, the third, there's three warnings of the return of the king. The first warning for us is that we need to be ready. We need to be ready. Now, we've talked about this before in the previous sermons. But whenever we talk about being ready, the big kind of broad question, I just leave it at is this. Um, what do you want to be doing 
when, not, not in like that particular set of five minutes, <laughs> but I mean, if you kind of take a step back in the broad scope of your particular life at that particular season of your life, whether you are a teenager, whether you're in college, whether you're a 20-something or 30-something or whatever, when you look at that particular season of your life and Jesus is going to come inside of that particular season, what do you want to be to be said of that particular time of your life? That you are pursuing Christ or you are pursuing selfish ambitions? He's telling us to be ready, that it literally we don't know what can happen. It can happen at any time. Therefore, when he tells us that, the big broad question we need to be asking ourselves is, what does being ready look like for me? What do I want to be doing when he comes back? Pursuing selfishness or pursuing Jesus? And I, I, don't, I, I hasten to, I, I, not hasten, I, I hate to drive into like particulars because I don't want us to, to think that... Um, if at that particular moment you're doing a sin like you're going to hell, that's not what I think. I think that the, if you're pursuing Christ and we're believers, we're certainly forgiven for all of our sin. But that's no reason to not be pursuing him at every particular moment as, to the best of our ability. And so um, if he catches you like in a sin at that particular moment, I don't think you're going to hell. I think that if you trust the gospel, believe the gospel, then you're saved. But our hearts should want to be um, honoring Christ in all seasons of life because at any moment we have this warning like we need to be ready because he could come back at any particular time and that's really what this whole rest of this book's about the rest of what the parables are about and that's what the, the coming judgment's about is this um, idea telling us that we need to be ready there's a warning to be ready there's not only a warning to be ready but there's also a second warning that you're going to see in verses 37 and uh through 39 it says this as that as were the days of noah so will be the come so will be the coming of the son of man now if you're unfamiliar just so we can all put our put our minds back into the same idea um noah lived in the new testament i'm sorry in the old testament not in the new testament noah lived in the old testament in the book of genesis and so you you're kind of trucking down the 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 genesis road and, and you get to about chapter six um there's there's People being created, and then, or people that were created, and then they're, they're having families, they're having families, and, and the world's getting populated. And it gets to about chapter 6, and God looks out at, at, at the world, and, and in chapter 6, verse 5, it says something to this effect. God looks at everybody, and he sees that every thought is only evil continually all the time. Uh, uh, something around those lines. So he's looking at man, and he's saying, wow, there is a lot of wicked sinners. Ah, relent, and there's a whole lot of theological import into the idea that God is relenting here. Um, but he says, I relent that I changed, that I, that I created man. I should have never have done it. I'm just going to send a flood, just destroy them all. Um, and instead of killing everybody, he shows grace. He tells Noah, I want you to build this really huge boat. And I want you and your family, and that's it, to get on there. And then the floods are going to come and everybody's going to die. That's, that's kind of the, the uh, we take out that part when we t- teach the children. We just talk about the animals. Like, look at the animals. Forget about everybody dying. So um, there's the, uh, and Jesus is telling us that um, as, <laughs> as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So this is not a pleasant thought. We're not like to focus on the animals. Instead, it's bad. It's really bad. Everybody died. 
Um, at, and so it says, for in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. I'm going to talk about that because it seems like that's being talking about in a negative sense. I don't think it necessarily could be. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away and killed them. So that um, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, before we dump, dive into this, um, since we're going to, through end times, I kind of talked about the rapture and pre-trib and post-trib last week. I'm going to do a new set of kind of definitions this week that is going to be pertinent for this particular section. So um, this is like the, uh, the, the side note that has a point. Generally, they have points, generally. So here's a couple definitions for you. Um, we talked about the tribulation, which is a seven-year period, and then we talked about after the tribulation, what's known as the millennium, the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus that comes at the end time. So the millennium is a time of period that happens, is discussed in Revelation 20. And during that time, um, and this is just a broad definition because there's different views of the millennium, which I'm going to talk about um, where it says the reign of Christ is a thousand years. During this time, Satan is bound. He's thrown into a pit. And um, the millennium is marked by a, a period of peace and prosperity for God's people. And after this millennium reign, um, there'll be, at this time, there'll appear the new heavens and the new earth at the end of it. That's, that's kind of the general idea. And then there's three different theological views of this. And let me, let me talk about them. One's called premillennialism. And this just means that... Um, when you think about that millennium, we know that the second coming is going to happen this, that he's been talking about. And so people are like, well, when's it going to come? You know, when's that going to... And there's three different views. This gets, you know... This is why end times is the most fun to preach. So anyway, um, premillennialism, it says, the view that the second coming of Christ will precede the millennium. It will come at the beginning and that Jesus is going to rule personally and bodily on the earth during the thousand years. That's premillennialism. That's actually what I hold to. Um, Postmillennialism, the view that the millennium will come through the success of the gospel, gradually converting the world and ushering in a golden age of the church. So the idea is um, it, things are really bad right now, and they've kind of always been, but there's going to be this magical turn where the gospel is going to spread through all throughout everywhere, and at the very end, it's actually going to be, um, the church is going to um, usher in this golden age through, uh, because people are just going to keep getting saved. After a long period of peace and righteousness, there will be an outbreak of evil. Christ will come in person to win the victory. So the idea is that that second coming comes at the very end of that millennium. And there's something called ah millennialism, which just ah always kind of means no. Um, it says the view that the thousand years in Revelation 20 is symbolic of the church age in which we live. And there will be no earthly millennium as such. It's all just kind of a symbolic thing. Rather, the second coming will usher in the final state of the new heavens and the new earth. So there's not a thousand-year reign per se. It's just that it's kind of the, the, the church age. And at the very end, Jesus will come and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. But not necessarily a literal thousand-year reign. So we've got people in the church that hold all three of those, um, by the way. And so what I want to do is talk about the second warning here. Because as we're reading verse 36, there's a warning of uh, our, our necessity to be ready. This one in verse 37 through 40 is a warning of the actual judgment. You can say, you can see it there. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And here's when the judgment came. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So this is, this happened 
because judgment happened in, in the days of Noah. God judged them whenever this happened, um, and they were destroyed because of it. And so it's telling us that there will also be a day of judgment. So verse 37, um, I think, if you look at here, kind of is going to help us see that at least we can make an argument, I think, against premillennialism. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, postmillennialism, not against pre, because I am pre. Um, postmillennialism said it's just going to continually get better, get better, get better. The gospel is going to make it so that the, the world is just peaceful everywhere, and then Jesus is going to come at that time. But if you read this, it says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, it was just wickedly terrible. No one was following God. And he's saying, at the coming of the Son of Man, it's going to be like the days of Noah. No one will be following God. And so I think, well, that's not descriptive of the view of post-millennialism. I think that's descriptive of maybe pre or ah, uh, but not, not post. And so I think it largely points to an unbelieving world at the time of Christ's return. And um, post-millennialism kind of points to a believing world. I, I can just read one other text that, that supports this just while we're destroying post-millennialism. Um, <laughs> uh, from 2 Timothy 3, um, if you're post-millennialist, I'm sorry. But 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, certainly I think destroys the whole argument. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For many people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, Unholy, heartless, appeasing, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's not, that's not flowerly good language for the end times. I think it's going to be pretty bad. So um, as we saw also in Genesis, as we said, 6-5, it discusses the idea of people's thoughts were evil continually all the time. So it's describing for us at the end a period where people are really not following God at all. And so Jesus is going to come and there's going to be judgment up, upon these, um, all these particular people. Spurgeon, as he's reading this, and he starts commentating on this, he has um, some, in, some interesting conclusions about the flood verses and Christ's coming, and he makes some comparisons, really three comparisons that I think are helpful for us today. There's three things that he said. The first thing is it's going to be sudden. Both were sudden. Christ's coming, Noah's flood. They were both sudden, which means for us, if we're going to apply that to us, um, it's going to be very much a surprise, very much a surprise. And so the idea the belief, the, the, the false belief that you can do whatever you want for any kind of extended period of time in your life. And then one day, whenever you've sowed your wild oats and at any moment you can just finally, okay, God, I sowed my wild oats. I did all my selfish stuff. We're going to put all that back to the side because Jesus died on the cross and he forgives all that stuff. That, so now I'm ready to follow you. That idea is ludicrous. This is not the kind of life that is explain to us in the scriptures that God says is okay. We can't just live any way we want to because the coming is going to be sudden and unexpected. So we're exhorted. We're, we're told, don't do whatever you want. That's not how life... Once you have a knowledge of the existence of God, then that should change the way you think and live. The next thing, and I think this is interesting. I just had a conversation about this with uh, a guy in my computer community group this past Thursday, um, Spurgeon says it's going to be universal as Christ's coming was worldwide, as it's saying here in this particular verse, Spurgeon says, so the flood was worldwide. Um, interesting, I thought, because 
Some people can say that the flood was, was kind of down in just one particular region, not worldwide. Um, Spurgeon didn't see it that way. I don't know that it matters, but we know that the second coming is going to be worldwide. It's not just going to be um, put in one particular location. It's going to, as it says for us in verse 27, where, wherever he comes, it, everybody in the world is going to know. The next one was uh, in verse, the third one was that it's going to be terrible for the ungodly. The third conclusion was in the flood, for those that were not following Jesus or God, which is Jesus, it was very terrible for them. And the same thing for the second coming. A special measure of judgment awaits those who do not follow God. So there's, a, there's the second warning of coming judgment that's going to be happening. Now, let's, let's take a little um, look at this where it says they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Because as we read that, we can think to ourselves, well, that must be bad. That must be bad. I don't think that it's necessarily bad to do those things. I think that what he's saying is, the way that they were living was just worldly and selfish. And so they were doing whatever they wanted. But in particular, we can't grab those particular things and say, therefore those things must be bad. Eating, drinking, marrying, getting married, uh, or ma- giving ourselves in marriage. I don't think that those things are necessarily bad. The idea of what he's saying is they were just living for themselves. They're just doing whatever they wanted. That's what we need to guard against. Um, I have a lot of notes on this. I think I'm just going to skip some of it, and I'm just going to go down to the application then. This is what I think the application, as we're looking at point two, knowing that there's a warning of coming judgment, I think that what we need to realize is this. Um, In regard to three particular parts of our life, in regard to work, in regard to play, in regard to spirituality. These are not on the the screen. These are just applications for point number two. So when we read that, and if you're reading it, if you're like me, I get a little freaked out. I, I, get, I get big time freaked out. I'm like, well, then what do I do? Is it literally 24-7, I'm in my prayer closet or I'm evangelizing or I, I quit my job. All I'm supposed to do is just follow Jesus and live in fear of the second coming at any particular moment, not enjoy anything, you know, get my, my junk in order or he's going to zap me with lightning. That's how I feel. So I want to let us all calm down and say, that's not what I think it is. So as we look at this idea of coming judgment. What does that look like then for us right now? Let let me ask, let me, life. What does it look like for life in regard to work? In regard to work, um, hopefully all of you are having a job or looking for a job or maybe you're just independently wealthy. We all love you for that. Um, In regard to work, your life should be business as usual. You, You go to your job, you do a good job, you show up on time, you leave on time, you don't steal pens, you don't steal paper, you... You work hard, you earn your company money, you, you do all those things. That's what life should look like, business as usual. Um, because that's, we, we have Colossians 3.17, we have Colossians 3.23, do your work as unto the Lord. Um, so we know that as Christians, we don't know when it's supposed to come. Therefore, the way we work is we work diligently for the Lord. We bring honor to Him, and so we don't, freak out, quit our job, just work part-time at Best Buy or at Blockbuster, which is going down anyway. So like, we, we, we look for real jobs that try to support our family. We have families, we, we have children, and we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what it looks like in regard to work. What does it look like, life, in regard to party and play? Because when we read that, that sounds like party and play. And so it sounds like Jesus says, never party, never play, never have fun. Jesus is watching. And so I don't think that that's what he's saying here. Um, we eat because God gives us food. 
Now, I know I just said fast, and you sound like I'm contradicting myself. We have to eat sometime, right? We, we need to have food to live. So we do fast, saying that we come, but when we're not fasting, we eat. We don't overeat, but we eat. And as we eat, every bite we take, when it's good, we, we say, I enjoy this to the glory of God. Thank you for creating steak that tastes good. Thank you for creating marinated chicken that's on the grill that's yummy. God, you created these things. And so we eat to the glory of God. We enjoy his good gifts and drink. We enjoy drink. We, we don't get drunk and we don't overindulge in, in things. And we, we shouldn't drink sugary drinks, especially if you live in New York, not over 16 ounces. But other than that, like we, we have to realize that God gives us things. And as we enjoy those things, we, we don't t- take them. We don't drink orange juice or milk or water and just say, whatever. We drink those things to the glory of God. Thank you for this good gift. And we, and we have it. And in regard to party and play, and I'm going to stick marriage in there. Um, we get married and we enjoy that. And God has given us this great gift of marriage to bring a husband and wife together to realize that <laughs> no one's going to now show you and help you see your sin more sharply than your spouse. That's awesome, right? I see how selfish I am every single day when I'm married because Christy doesn't have to say anything. She just asks me to do stuff. And in my heart, I say, I don't want to do those things. I want to do my stuff. And then I think, oh, I'm so selfish. And so God gives us these marriages as, as good gifts to grow us in our awareness of selfishness, to grow us in our awareness to be able to say, I want to be like Christ. I don't want to be selfish. And so we need marriage. We you should, and you should have children. They're a secondary source of showing you how to not be angry at things and also how selfish you are whenever they're screaming in the middle of the night or they walk downstairs and they throw up in your bed, those kinds of things. You just, I don't want to clean this up, and now I'm mad. Um, so we, we in, in regard to life, party, and play, and children, and eat and drink, and we, we pursue those things. And then I think the other thing it shows us, which is in life, in regard to spirituality, and, and, and that's such a broad term, and, you know, everybody uses that. Even Oprah uses it. So I want to I narrow in what I mean by spirituality. Spirituality, for Christians, means the pursuit of holiness in Christ, believing what Christ has done for us on the cross. Um, in regard to that, we should be pursuing it vigilantly. We should be pursuing Jesus vigilantly. Let me give us, I want to read a quote from a guy named Richard Loveless, and I think that this quote is going to help us get an understanding of what I mean, because um, this is really dangerous, especially in the South. As Christians, we, we don't mean to, but we really can get on a mode, and if you've been any time here at Remedy, you probably know what I'm about to say. Um, we can get into a mode that after we become Christians, that we think now that I'm a Christian and God's forgiven me and I'm in his house and I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer and I'm in, in the family, now it's all up to me to stay here. Listen to this. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, listen to this, apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. You, you need to realize this. Your... Um, Assurance of your salvation and your assurance that God loves you and accepts you is not based in your present achievements in regard to pursuing Jesus. It's only and always based in what Christ has done for you. You cannot base it on 
this morning, if I read my Bible and I prayed and I didn't yell at the guy that cut me off on my drive here and I didn't yell at my wife or children, now that I didn't do those things, I didn't do sins, God's really happy with me right now. That is That is not the gospel. That is not the good news that Christ has died for us and has forgiven everything. Whenever we say our our right standing with God is based on his cross, it means that that is my only thing. I I want to pursue my wife. I want to pursue Jesus. I want to love my children well. I, I don't want to yell at the guy that cut me off. But if I do or not, it's not, those things don't determine my right standing with God. Jesus' death on the cross and, his, that, and him saying, now you are 100% righteous. Now that you are completely forgiven for all your sin. That's the only thing I have. When, when I stand before God, I don't say, I, I got saved and then look at those things I did and didn't do. I, we're not going to say that. We're going to say, everything is based on Christ. <laughs> I have no way to be able to stand here if it's not for Jesus. And so, if we... Base it on spiritual achievements, he says, that were radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians, because they too have, um, they have too much light to resist heavily under the constant bulletins they receive from Christian environment about the holiness. In other words, we're, we're at church and we see these, these bulletins constantly about holiness and we think, oh, I've got to be holy because that's what, that's what everybody's telling me, instead of remembering it's what Christ has done. Let me, let me take one little side note, too. Um, when you, I've heard people say, when you tell people that their right standing with God is based on what Christ has done, and now because of that, they don't, they don't have to pursue holiness um, as a means to be right with God because it's already given to them, the pushback is, well, then they're just going to live like sinners. You can't tell people that. If you tell them that they're forgiven in Christ and everything's good, they're just going to go do whatever they want. And I just don't find that to be the case. I find that when, I, when Christians say your right standing with Jesus is only dependent upon what he's done for you, now since that's true, do you want to go live like a big sinner? They say no. In response to that truth, all I want to do is give my life for Christ. I'll do anything he wants. All of my sins forgiven. I'm going to heaven no matter what. I don't want to sin. The posture of their heart changes and doesn't say, well, if I'm forgiven, I'll just swipe that credit card and go sin. I don't know Christians that say that. They say, that's unbelievable. I want to give my whole life for him. So don't be afraid to really believe the gospel for fear that you'll take advantage of it. I just don't think that believers that really follow Christ will do that. Um, back, to the, uh, back to the sermon. So in regard to life, in regard to pursuing Christ... We pursue him with everything that we have. And the last warning is this, and it comes from verse 40 and 41. We'll go through this one really fast. Verse 40 and 41 says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. And there's lots of debate on the taken and left. You know, which one do I want to be? Do I want to be taken or do I want to be left? I don't know. Um, D.A. Carson ends up saying that it's actually not particularly important to figure out which one's taken and which one's left and which one's good. Um, It could be that one's taken to go to heaven, and it could be that one's taken to go to the judgment because they're going to be condemned. Um, And it could be that one's left in order to be one day judged, or it could be that they're left in order because they're not going to the judgment in order to be there with Jesus. I don't know that it matters. I, I think that verse 31 helps us but I don't really have time for that. So let's, let's actually get to the actual point here. Um, 
because I think there's a bigger point since we don't know and Jesus doesn't make it clear. I think there's a bigger point for us that we can see. Um, so the third warning is warning of the division of the godly and ungodly. That's, that's what's going on here. There's, there's two people. Notice that two men will be in the field. And so he's leaving that ambiguous intentionally. Jesus is leaving this story ambiguous intentionally to make us think these two men in the field from our looking at it seem to be completely alike. Their characteristics, their relationship with God, their remi- it's making us think that the two of them are completely the same as we look at it. They have an identical situation and maybe even in their minds on the outside, identical relationships to Christ. And what he says is that particular day, what's going to happen is one's going to be taken, one's left. There's a division of the godly and ungodly. But they don't seem to know that that's the case. They think they're exactly alike. One is taking something for granted. It's the same thing. with. So you have basically in verse 40, you've got co-workers. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. And all like it's, it's written ambiguously enough to think these two women are the exact same. They even think they're the exact same. More than likely, it's just a story, but their mother and daughter, maybe they're uh, two servants together, or maybe they're sisters. Maybe it's your family. The idea is that One is thinking that they're the exact same as the other, even in regard to Christ. The division of the ungodly and godly comes. One is taken, one's left. One is either with Jesus or taken to destruction, and one's left to be with Jesus or one day be destroyed. The point is, they're they're divided. And so there's a warning of the division of the godly and ungodly. And I think the application of the taken, then, is not called Liam Neeson. Instead, the application is to say, oh no, oh no, wait a second. These two particular people, they're in particular relationships in these stories that we think that they are identical. They're co-workers, and we think both of them know Jesus. They're family members, and we think both of them know Jesus. Or they're roommates, or they're neighbors, or whatever, and we think both of them know Jesus. And what he's saying is, you should not take that for granted. You should not just assume that that's the case, um, because it's not the case. They're warning here. That if you assume as a Christian that this person beside you is a non-Christian, but you never verbally talk about Jesus to them, you just assume there will be a day of division where you will go to hell, but they will not. Spurgeon looking at this says, The separation which should frighten us will be eternal. There is no hint of future reunion. We just took for granted that our coworker, our neighbor, our roommate, our family member because they looked like us, act like us, talk like us. We thought they were a Christian, and they're not. And this, there was no second chance. Because this coming of the Lord could happen at any moment. So the point is then to be ever watchful. To be ever attentive to those around you. You can seem identical them in a whole lot of ways even it seems maybe in their relationship to Christ but don't take that for granted and don't just assume that instead talk about Jesus and the gospel with them we must get ourselves out of that weirdness and be able to just freely talk about Jesus with them because we cannot just assume that they're Christians this is why I love one of our community groups does this every time they gather I love this every time they gather they pick someone different, and that one person tells the entire group the gospel. I love that. They don't assume that everybody knows how to do it, and they don't assume that everybody's heard it. And so they they verbally will just tell the gospel. 
Who's going to say the gospel today? You go. Tell us all what the gospel is, that Christ has loved you, that he has died for you. All your sins can be completely forgiven if you put your faith in his work on the cross. And since he was resurrected, he showed us that he has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Therefore, we are promised life eternal because he has defeated Satan, sin, and death for us. They, they tell each other, somebody got saved in January just out of that exercise in community group because they did not assume that everybody knew it. We should not ever assume that just because someone that looks like you, acts like you, likes the same things as you, is a believer. There's a division one day that's promised where people that look like you might be taken or left, whichever one's the bad one. And so the conclusion is this. Um, There's three things I want to conclude with. That's kind of the whole idea here. Number one, as Christians, let's put into our schedule a fasting for his coming. I don't know what that'll look like for you. It could just be one meal. And if you already skip breakfast, don't make it breakfast. Like make it something that you're actually going to feel. You should, maybe this is a better way to say it. Ask Jesus to give you a longing for his coming. Whatever would create a longing in me, if it's fasting or whatever, Jesus, put that longing so that I will pray back to you to come. That's the first thing. We don't fear that day. We rejoice in that day and ask it to happen. The second thing is this. Be ready for the second coming and live that way. Answer this question in your head. What do I want to be doing when Christ comes? What do I want the season of my life to look like? Missionary, on mission, praying for my lost friends, pursuing him, killing sin, or whatever I feel like. What do you want the season of your life to look like if he were to come in that season? Pray, desire, deeply long for his second coming. Second one, be ready and know what your life would look like for that. And the third one comes right out of verse 40 and 41. Every coworker, every neighbor, every family member needs to hear the gospel from you. Don't assume it. Don't just feel like they've heard it. Let them hear it from your mouth. If you truly love them, you would tell them. Just like they do in the community group where somebody talks about the gospel. They just, they do not assume. And listen, I think that you'll realize even today as Christians, whenever we go over the gospel today, whenever I said something about the gospel, even if you are a Christian, you don't think to yourself, oh, stop telling me about God's forgiveness for me. Stop telling me about all the forgiveness I have in Christ. No, we... One of the main things about the gathering together of, of Christians is like, if you're going to tell me anything, pastor, you better tell me that Jesus has died for me and all my sins forgiven and I have assurance of salvation that what he has done has secured for me eternity. Tell me that message. Maybe give me an application. Okay, but please tell me what Jesus has done. So when you get together, certainly you should do that. So let's, let's have a time of response here. We, we're going to go into a time of songs. This is going to be two or three or four where you've got some time to think. You've got some time to breathe. Like if, if God from his word has spoken to us, we don't think, oh, okay, what's for lunch? We've got some time here. So in these songs, maybe you want to sit, maybe you want to think, maybe you want to pray, maybe you want to ask the spirit to just do some work. And as you're ready, stand and worship with us. Just be obedient to the Spirit's leading.
however he's leading you right now. Respond in that way. And if you don't know Jesus, if this gospel that we've been talking about is something brand new to you, you're hearing about forgiveness of all your sin for eternity and life eternal with him, if that's something new to you, come talk to me. Talk to the person you came with. I want to tell you how you can be a Christian today and have eternal security forever. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for texts about your second coming that focus us on what real, true reality is and is only found in Christ and what he's done for us. I pray that we would live in proper response of these things, knowing that there's a warning of your coming, that we need to be ready. There's a warning of judgment. There's a warning of division. Therefore, we need to live as Christians responding to that truth that we're telling people about Jesus, but also we are trusting in the gospel. Be with us now as we respond. I pray that the believers here will stand in glory in the forgiveness of Christ and worship you. And I pray that those that are not believers, Lord, right now would be drawn to Christ and would put their faith in what he's done for them on the cross. And they would be Christians today. They would become Christians today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.